Hello, it's Marcus Kauke bringing you the Inquisitor podcast. And today I have the delight Amy Woodall, who is used to dealing with difficult people. She deals with an odd little man called Tim Roberts every day, who is the David Sandler award winner for 2018-19. And Amy, how do you cope with dealing with such an odd little man? (laughs) I kick him in the knees and stomp on his toes. It works fabulously. (laughs) I suspect you'll probably be kicking him in the head if you aim for his knees. (laughs) (laughs) hey that's true that's true if i'm wearing heels excellent so tell me why is it so difficult to deal with difficult people you know marcus i think what it is is that for many of us we internalize these things and when we face difficult situations or we're dealing with difficult people we somehow have a really great knack of making it about us meaning we get our emotions involved, the ego inside starts to play games, and we can't wait to figure out how we are not to blame and the other person has 100% responsibility. Or we do the flip side and we have guilt and shame. And so I think it's the emotional toll that it can take on us that has made it a hot button issue. I mean, people are really coming out of the woodwork asking for tips and tricks on how to deal with these difficult folks. Well, this is really interesting because that whole piece around blame and ego fascinates me because I see this every day. I've got three daughters and I remember not long ago they were fighting. And when I asked them what happened, one of them said, it's not my fault. She hit me back first. And so you see this where people are trying to absolve themselves of blame because they're afraid of being judged, afraid of getting into trouble. Why is that? Where does that stem from? There's a lack of ownership that I think many of us have just instinctually. It can be taught. That's really my jam. I love to teach people how to own their shit, if you will, Um, how to take extreme ownership. And I think that because we feel like blame, the definition many of us have on blame is also associated with shame or being bad. And blame, the word is not that deep if we don't allow it to be. So I think that it's some redefining of what our emotional response is to the idea of blame and understanding that when we blame someone else, we are robbing ourselves of an opportunity to learn and to grow. But I think it's fear-based, right? That we dodge blame or point fingers because we're fearful of what will happen if we raise our hand in the air and are vulnerable and say, it was me. This is really interesting because certainly in our culture over here in the UK, vulnerability is often perceived as a negative. It's a personality defect. But Mm -hmm. if you look at the origins of the word, it comes from the Latin root, vulnerabilis, which means to make yourself woundable and do it anyway. A Roman legionary would go into battle having taken off his body armor. A bit stupid, but an act of courage. And if he made it out the other end, then he was considered to be a great hero and terribly brave. But the problem is, I think the word vulnerability has been diluted and corrupted over the years. Talk to me about the strength that vulnerability demonstrates to other people. I think that we need to replace the idea, again, that's another definition, that we are misinformed with how we interpret that. And so often vulnerability is placed in the same category as weakness. And those two things do not belong together. Because I think vulnerability takes great strength and it takes great bravery in order to be authentic. That's actually the camp that I would put vulnerability in is authenticity. And it doesn't matter. I mean, I know that, you know, it feels like, hey, yeah, well, you don't understand, you know, how things work over here in our company, in our industry, (laughs) in our culture, right? But the fact is that people are people wherever you go. And we all just want to be able to be ourselves. And 
if we put that coat of armor up, it must mean that we're, we're tougher and we're stronger and we've got it all figured out. When in fact, when people can be vulnerable without being a victim or being weak, then people really admire that because it does take strength in order to be real. Well, I think this is a really interesting thing about corporate cultures where people are punished for making mistakes. And I did an interview on Wednesday last week with Bill Bartlett about coaching. And what he was talking about there were the three Ps of potency, permission, and protection. So potency allows both sides to behave as equals. And I think what's really important in a difficult conversation is to not abdicate your power, but to position yourself as having equal stature, but equally not to try and lord it or take advantage of the other person. Permission is about being able to speak freely. And protection means that you can speak freely without reprisals. So if you're coaching somebody, they should feel like they're not going to be punished for telling their version of the truth. And I think the same thing with difficult conversations. What are your thoughts on that? When we're fearful of retribution, then we lie. And maybe not even out and out lie, but we protect certain parts of the truth because we're afraid of what someone will do with it if we give it to them. And so for sure, being able to allow somebody to feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable, to step up and say, I made a mistake, I could use some help, I could use some coaching. When people are able to advocate for what they need, it becomes easier to lead them. But in order to do that, you've got to be someone who allows people to Bill Bartlett's point, to build one of my absolute favorites. You've got to be someone who can put your ego aside long enough that you let someone else feel comfortable in letting their guard down in front of you and you can hold them safely. Now, holding someone safely doesn't mean that you coddle them. It doesn't mean that you help them make excuses for their behavior, but it means they're in a safe space where they can be fully upfront with where it is that they screwed up, they messed up, they dropped the ball, and then you can use it as a coaching session. And in Sandler, a lot of the programs, we talk about the Karkman's drama triangle. And That's something certainly for listeners to take a peek at. And we can even dive into that, Marcus, if you'd like. How do we get people to a place where they feel safe so that they're not stuck in that blame game? Absolutely. In fact, that's one of the fundamentals of what I teach my clients right at the start and keep reiterating. Because when someone is in that drama triangle, it's their ego that's been hooked. Ego thrives on drama. So if Mm -hmm. you take any one of those three positions of victim, persecutor, or rescuer, that's your ego being hooked. And the moment you're in that, or either one of you is in that, then you're in a psychological gameplay. And there are no winners from that. There may be a temporary winner. You may win temporarily, but they will find a way to get even. And they'll find a way to destabilize things. So I'm curious about your experience of dealing with the carbon triangle. For those who maybe not be familiar with the way that this is broken down is there are three steps and you mentioned what those three positions are. So the victim is the, what the victim sounds like is it's basically a refusal to take any responsibility. The victim says, there is nothing I can do. This is not my fault. These guys did it. And this happens in the workforce. It happens at home. Again, people are people wherever you go. So we really can't hide from these situations. But these are the folks who just, they feel like their hands are tied and they're at the mercy of everyone else. And then there's the persecutor. And the persecutor is the blamer, right? The one who's pointing the finger back and transactional analysis or ego state terms, they go into critical parents. 
If you're not familiar with that, I will share with you the tonality. It sounds like this. You better get in there and get this done right now. I mean, this is someone who has such a sharp tone that it can send a shrill up your spine. And I think that the victim and persecutor play this really fun game back and forth called the jerk versus the moron. Because in the eyes of the persecutor, the victim is just an idiot. Like these idiots over here, they don't get it. They don't understand it, right? And in the eyes of the victim, the persecutor is a jerk, right? They're just rude. They're hateful. They're mean. And they play this fun game until the rescuer kicks in. And the rescuer, while it seems like they're doing the right thing in the moment because they're just trying to fix the situation, they create learned helplessness. And then what happens is the rescuer gets tired of fixing everyone else's problems and they eventually fall into either victim, which is, you know what? Gosh, everybody needs me for everything. I can't get any of my own work done because I'm so busy fixing everybody else's problems or they become the persecutor, which is, I can't keep fixing your problems for you. You're going to have to go out and fix yourself. I believe that there's an invisible place in this Kaufman drama triangle that we can't all see that's called ownership. And ownership is maybe that middle ground where it says, look at, we understand how to look at situations and take emotion out of it. If we learn how to take emotion out of it, we can think more strategically about how to fix it. And when we're able to do that, we are able to not repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. But to your point, so many cultures, and this happens in the US as well, Marcus, is there's this fear of if I'm vulnerable, if I say I made a mistake, then it's going to be used against me or they're going to see me as incompetent. And therefore, we lie about our role in the situation, but we don't learn from it, right? Because we didn't take ownership. So we just repeat the patterns over and over and over again. So teaching yourself and your people how to move to ownership is really how we decrease the internal drama in difficult situations and get people to productivity. This is really interesting. I don't know if you've come across the winner's triangle. My favorite philosopher, Bruce Lee, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. And (laughs) instead of being in the drama triangle, if the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer, you move to a place of authenticity, which is the winner's triangle. And the winner's triangle is vulnerable, nurturing, and empathic, and assertive. So instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable. Instead of being persecuting, you're assertive. And instead of being rescuing, you're nurturing and empathic. And Mm. it does take you to that place where there is an opportunity to learn, where you can tell the kind truth, where you can hold someone safely, and you can take ownership. So instead of, if I'm running late, if I'm operating from the drama triangle, I may say, it's not my fault. Bloody sat-nav took me way around the house. There are all these blasted roadworks. I was doing my best because that's the refrain of the rescuer. I was doing my best. I was only trying to help. And instead of that, what you can say is, Amy, I am so sorry. It's entirely my fault. I left late. I misjudged how much traffic there would be and completely forgot about the roadworks. I should have left earlier. I know that you're busy this morning and I can understand that you're probably very upset with me. Would you like me to turn around and I can chalk this up to experience and you can recover the hour that we plan to spend together on something more productive? I hope you can forgive me. Well done. That is incredibly potent. It's the hardest thing I have ever done in my career is operating from there because it takes you out of the scripting 
that we have, which is to operate from the critical parent, the adaptive child, and what I term the negative nurturing parent, the rescuer. And Mm. it forces you to operate from the adult, the positive nurturing parent, and it allows you to capture and use the natural child. The natural child is curious, autonomous. It's self-directed in its learning. It does, however, need to be under adult supervision because it's got me in trouble more than once. Um, (laughs) And so the challenge here is to operate below the line out of that winner's triangle. And in dealing with difficult people, it's incredibly potent because when we're up against someone who is angry, they're frustrated, they don't want you to say something like, I understand, or they don't want you to say, it's not my fault. What they want to say is, tell me, tell me what you feel. Let me understand from your point of view what your position is. And let me see how together we can resolve this to your total satisfaction. What they're not interested in is you being defensive. So I'm really curious in terms of some of the experiences that you've had dealing with organizations where culturally they've started from that position of the customer's an idiot. It's never our fault. We're Mm -hmm. doing our best. We're hard-pressed. We're pushed. But they don't seem to understand. Management doesn't understand. The customers don't understand. My boss doesn't understand. Have you got a couple of stories of where you've been able to take people from there to that better place? Yeah. You know, it's really common in industries where there's a high level of technical knowledge that happens. Think of engineering, IT, Anywhere where you have people who are super, super smart that are highly needed in order to execute things on behalf of the customer, there's a lot of ego that can reside there because the mentality is they need us more than we need them, which is a big no-no. Like, look, at if it wasn't for your customers, you wouldn't have a job, right? So, So coming in and trying to redo and really take apart and put back together a healthier mentality, which is... The customer is not always right, but it's usually our fault when they're wrong. People who have that the smarts in that area, and this happens in all industries. It's not just the tech trade, but we often take our industry-specific knowledge and assume it's common knowledge. And when other people don't understand what we deem as common knowledge, we place judgment on them and we become frustrated and we can see them as difficult. So last year, I had the fortune of helping develop a, a mini course with corporate, right? For dealing with difficult people. And I was really adamant. I said, look at first chapter, we have got to get people to own their triggers. They have to own what pushes their buttons. They have to own what gets them frustrated and what gets them emotionally engaged. Because look at, we are 50% of every problem or every solution. And we have got to own 100% of our 50. If we are constantly putting 100% of the blame on someone else, then we are dodging responsibility, dodging ownership, dodging the opportunity to become better. And so for organizations who are maybe struggling there and they they see there's a lot of finger pointing and blame happening and not just to the customer. It could be internal customers. It could be departments who are just constantly passing blame back and forth. Step one is take a look in the mirror. What frustrates you? What gets you emotionally hooked? Write those down. Look at them. Those patterns are important. The more that we recognize that they exist, the more we can see it in slow motion when our buttons are becoming pushed or going to get pushed, 
And then we can move from our fight or flight mode, the emotional brain, into the prefrontal cortex, which is where we're able to access nurturing parents and the adult mindset. I don't know if you're familiar with despair.com. Do you know when you go into offices and they have um, these slightly sickly posters of Eagle's dare to soar and it's lonely on the last mile and all that kind of guff? Well, it's the antithesis Mm. of that. You'll appreciate this. They have a customer dissatisfaction charter, which says we're not satisfied till you're not satisfied. They have a card which says in all of your dissatisfying relationships, the one constant is you. And the problem is that people forget that. I think the point that you're making far more eloquent than me is that you have to meet the prospect or the customer where they are, not where you are. And if you don't go all the way over to meet them, then there is a gulf. And unless you understand where they're coming from, they are never going to feel served. And this is my next key question. I remember going to a talk that Dr. Stephen Covey gave, and I asked a very average question, but he came back with a spectacular answer. And it was a watershed moment for me. And his response was, the greatest among us serve the most. Mm. And I see this all the time, that people do not understand the difference between service and servitude. And so what they do is, in order to protect their ego, they distance themselves or they create barriers. And I think service is about really caring about the other person. I'm curious about what your definition of service is. You know, I I do think that service is trying to see things from their perspective and also asking the right questions so that you can kind of figure out where did root cause happen because the problems and challenges that they're bringing you when people are emotional and maybe they're frustrated and they are seeming to be challenged, there's a reason for that. But what we often do is we just judge them instantly of being like, oh, well, they're a jerk or they're a hole or they're whatever our favorite colorful term is. And we just assume that it means that they're a bad person. And in fact, bad behavior is indicative of fear somewhere. And so if we're sitting in that space of helping someone else, the mission really is, what's the fear? How can we uncover? What's the fear? Confusion, right? It, it could be led by confusion, but being confused is also driven by you know that sort of a fearful state of, I don't know what's going to happen next. And so I highly encourage people who are on the front lines or speaking to customers to A, get really excited when people complain to you. There's a book that was written several years ago called A Complaint as a Gift. And it was really set up to how do we cognitively see complaints in a different way. If a customer is frustrated, upset, complaining, take it in with appreciation. Because when people are loyal, they are more likely to tell you where they are dissatisfied. If people have no loyalty to your organization, they're just going to go to your competition and badmouth you. And so you'd much rather than bring it to your attention. You can't change what's not acknowledged. And then having gratitude that they gave you a chance to fix their problem because guess what? That's called job security. And then the next stage in that is really understanding where did we fall off? So I encourage companies in dealing with difficult people, look at there is a step-by-step approach. That step-by-step approach though in its nature is somewhat reactive because you're already dealing with that difficult situation. I encourage companies to keep track of the patterns that you're receiving of complaints and feedback Because what they're telling you is there is a gap in the expectations that you're setting from the get-go. That's fantastic advice. 
I believe patterns are powerful, right? If we look at what are the problems that we routinely have to fix or put out, then how can we have those conversations early and often with the customer so that they recognize that this is a part of our process and we can make sure that their expectations are in alignment with the way that your company operates. So let's look at that process for capturing those patterns. What advice can you give to individuals and organizations that are dealing with highly charged conversations in order to spot and capture those patterns? I encourage clients to to get together once a week would be a good cadence. But for some people, maybe it's once monthly and just say, what were the biggest fires that you put out over since the last time that we talked and record what those fires are and also have conversations on why did it feel like a big deal? Because sometimes our version of a five alarm fire, if you will, is very different. That can be mutual mystification of what we seem to be putting out a lot. But if you have those collectively created on a board, then you can go back and start to connect the dots and figure out where is their root cause. And maybe there's a lot of confusion. Let's just say you're in an industry where you have products or services that are warranted, right? And let's say there's a lot of confusions or frustrations around your warranty process. This can happen in a a lot of different industries. Then what you might find out is, hey, you know what? When we're onboarding our customers, we don't really do a great job of explaining to them exactly what this looks like and how it works. And therefore, they're frustrated and confused months or a year down the line because we didn't take the time to really explain this to them. And so you know what? The next time that we onboard somebody, we're going to make sure that this becomes a part of our onboarding process and that we clearly explain this. I mean, I think that none of these things are happening in a vacuum, that there is probably consistency in saying, we just we missed a five-minute opportunity to have a strong conversation that could have kept us from putting this fire out six months down the line. That makes a hell of a lot of sense. Okay, tell me this then. When you're dealing with customers who are pushing the boundaries, let's mm-hmm. say, so mm-hmm. the warranties run out, but they're still expecting the company to pick up the tab or where they're taking advantage, what advice do you give in those kind of circumstances? I think you can be politely powerful, but also be curious as to why they're asking for that. So in the process of dealing with someone that's difficult, we all instinctually need to be heard, right? Like if we're frustrated, we're angry, we're mad, we need to be heard. And so when you're dealing with someone who's frustrated or who's being seemingly difficult, one of the things that you might try is saying, Hey, how would you, how can we make this right for you? What do you have in mind? And let them tell you. Now, That doesn't mean you have to always give them their way. There's actually a lot of of science backing up that you don't have to have consensus in order to gain commitment. And so simply by letting them be heard and acknowledging that you heard them, you could give back some other options of saying, Hey, you know, I hear you. Here's what I'm thinking. Can we meet somewhere in the middle? You can begin the negotiating from that point out. However, your tonality, you know, to your point, Marcus, earlier on the, on the winning triangle, your tonality throughout is what's going to dictate their response. And so making sure that we don't become not okay and frustrated by what they're asking. Instead, we remain the space for them and we're trying to help kind of carry them to safe waters. The example that I give is dealing with someone who's difficult is a lot like being a lifeguard. 
if you are a lifeguard and your job is to save drowning people, guess what your first mission is when you get out there? It is to get them to chill out because if they are freaking out, flailing, throwing punches, they're going to take you both down and you're both drowning. And so difficult customers, difficult people are no different. You've got to get them calm before you can even begin to start to help problem solve. So let them be heard and give them options, negotiate, and be okay with saying, look at my biggest fear is we're not going to be able to give you what you want and you might want to go somewhere else. Is that what I'm hearing here? I mean, you can use for anybody who's listening that's familiar with Sandler already. I love that Sandler techniques and tactics can be woven into all pieces of an organization. It is not just sales focused. So you could use some strip lining, if you will. I think it's really important to understand that what we teach actually happens to be highly applicable in sales. But what it really is, is a human communications model. That's what the Sander methodology is all about. Because I use it in sales, in management, in recruiting and interviewing. I use it in dealing with conflict. I use it in dealing with negotiations. I use it with my kids, my wife, when I'm at a restaurant. Uh, I'm using this stuff all the time. And it works really well because it's based on two to 300 million years of evolutionary hardwiring. Mm-hmm. Now, you made the point right at the beginning. You know, people are people. Mark Goulston has a lovely line, which is, all people want to be heard, feel felt, and feel understood. And to put that front and center, in terms of the experience that you're trying to deliver, the way you behave, then miraculously, people warm to you far quicker than if you're trying to be right or if you're trying to win all the time. What people really want is to be understood. That's Mm -hmm. why they come to salespeople in the first place. They're looking for leadership and a safe pair of hands because they have a problem, they're stuck, and they don't really understand the cause of their problem. So tell me this, Amy. In terms of dealing with that critical parent voice, you've mentioned it a couple of times already. Do you mind going into a little bit more detail about what that critical parent is attempting to do? And I think that all of your ego states are there to try and do something to protect you or do you good. And I think the critical parent is trying to protect you. Um, Unfortunately, it does it in such a way that it generally pisses people off. So can you explain what you believe the purpose of the critical parent is and how to utilize it effectively and how to change the tonality of that internal dialogue? So while it's critical, it's not attacking you at an identity level. It's focusing on your behavior and your role. When I think of the critical parent, I think it's the one who has the need to control or to be heard. Like, you will hear me. And to your point, I often think of Maslow's hierarchy of uh, the human relations, you know, our hierarchy of human needs, if you will. I really butchered that. But one of the things that's in there, obviously, we need food, water, shelter to survive. The next step is security, validation, acceptance. And for every one of us, to your point, Marcus, we just are looking to be validated and accepted. And some of us do it in kinder ways than others. So even when we're evoking that critical parent ego state, this is someone who's saying, but I need to be seen as right. And you need to see me as right. And you need to respect me. I'm in control here. It's really driven by fear. It's a way of protecting us. But it's also a way of saying, I feel like I can earn validation or acceptance if I just control the situation. That's my take on it. However, when we find that maybe we're in that state and it is dictated by tonality for sure. So practice your tone 
It is not what you say. It is how you say it. You could tell somebody to go to hell. And if you do it nice enough, they'll think, well, that sounds like a nice place this time of year. So your, your tone is going, right? Your tone is going to dictate all of this. So if you find yourself in this sharp, direct, just sort of finger wagging mode where you're just pointing at someone else and you're trying to put them in your place to remember that you are pushing their buttons and the response you're going to get is probably not one you're prepared for. And then you're going to hop back on that Carpman's drama triangle and you're going to play victim or persecutor. And it, you know, just, it all goes hand in hand. So to get the same point across, right? If you're trying to educate or help someone, but you find that critical parent is the tone that you tend to go into, recognize that when we are in that state, people are typically combative or they shut down because we trigger their emotional response. Because parents speak to children that when you're in a critical parent ego state, you're most likely triggering their child ego state. And the child ego state is based on the emotions that we felt as a kid. So imagine now that you're trying to come to resolution. You're trying to get them to understand and to see. However, you have just pushed them into their fight or flight mode. So you have somebody who's going to fight back and tell you why you're wrong or try and put you in your place, or you have someone who's going to shut down and feel the guilt and shame and run away or just not give you any information. What you've got to do is be able to engage the prefrontal cortex. You've got to be able to engage the logical mindset. And in order to do that, you've got to stay a nurturing parent or an adult so that they feel safe and we're not triggering the emotional response. And so if you want to give somebody that feedback of, well, the information's online. If you just got on there and you looked at it, you'd be able to find it, right? Instead, you could say, well, you know, it's very common that our clients maybe aren't able to find this information online. Would you mind if we just take a few seconds and I can walk you through so that you can find it? And then that way, the next time you have a question, it'll be easily at your fingertips. We're giving people the same information, but with one, they're more willing to listen than the other. That's an outstanding point. Amy, I'd like to wrap up on this. In terms of the internal dialogue that people who are dealing frontline with difficult people are running, how can they learn to get that under control? Because we started out by saying, look in the mirror first. I think you have to listen to that internal voice and pay attention to its tonality. Can you give some tips and hints in terms of how you can stop the judgment and stop the critical parent taking a piece out of you? So I'll give you a couple of tips that folks can take home with them. Number one is that nothing is inherently good or bad without your permission. So what I mean by that is every situation that is brought to you, even if it's someone screaming, you know what? We don't have to attach that that's good or that it's bad. It just is what it is. But our opinion is what's going to dictate our response. So one of the best, most freeing things that we can possibly do is just redefine how we look at difficult people and what we deem to be as difficult. Because if you had a conversation in your office, and this is a great conversation internally for companies to have, by the way, which is, hey, what do you think is a difficult person or persuasion? You would hear all sorts of responses. And some people will agree with you. And some people will say, those kind of people don't bother me. And the difference is definition. So nothing is good or bad without your permission. The second thing to keep in mind is that that person is going to behave in the way whether you are there to witness it or not. So what I mean by that is it's not about you. 
It's not about you. It's probably not even... It could be about the company. But just know that their response is not personal. So we've got to have the IR theory conversation with ourselves that we are responding to this from a role perspective. And this is not an identity conversation. The identity does not need to get mixed in unless we allow it to. And then the next piece of that is learning how when you are triggered and you recognize your triggers, and if you become very in tune with your emotional responses, understand what is your physical response to pressure? Do your handshake? Does your face get red? Do you get flustered? Know what that is. Because the minute you feel yourself coming into that space, learn how to breathe. Breathing is what allows our body to shift into this moment and not get caught up into what our reactive state is going to be and all of the hardwiring that we have from the past and the ego states that are going to take hold. Learn how to breathe so that you can access your prefrontal cortex. You have to to have yourself protected before you can help someone else. Just like being on the airplane. When they say, hey, you've got to put your mask on before someone else's, you've got to do the same when you're dealing with those difficult situations. That's outstanding advice. And in fact, Mark Goulston has a five-step exercise called Oh Fuck to OK. So um, (laughs) when, when you realize there's a catastrophe, you've screwed up, whatever, the first thing you say is, oh, fuck, I've screwed up. The next thing is, oh, shit this is going to be a disaster. I need to do something about this. Oh, geez. What can I do about it? Okay. So this is the situation. In under a minute, you can stop that amygdala hijack and Mm -hmm. you can bring yourself back down. It's really important to understand what's going on inside your body because your endocrine system is pumping out cortisol and adrenaline. And those hormones, if they're pumped out in volume, can stay in your body anywhere from 20 minutes to two weeks depending on the level of stress that you're suffering from. And they make you sick. So if you are dealing with difficult people on a regular basis, pay heed to Amy's advice. First of all, it will make you live longer. And secondly, your experience on the planet will be significantly enhanced. Amy, thank you. This has been really insightful. I understand that you produced an online course. Can people get that from the Sandler shop? Yeah, so there is a mini course. So it's four chapters dealing with difficult people where we break down the you know proactive approach, the reactive approach, the how to identify your triggers. We really go through a lot of the stuff that they can find on, uh, I think, learn.sandler.com. Excellent. So I'll provide a link for that to the Sander shop so you can download it straight to your PC or phone. Amy, how can people get hold of you? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn under Amy Woodall. And I'm pretty sure it's just LinkedIn slash Amy Woodall to find me. Excellent. And do you have any events coming up that you'd like people to know about locally? You know, I'm speaking. It's actually sold out this week. I'm speaking at an event. Let's see, some other events locally. I'm doing a lot of talking for the government. Who knew that they deal with difficult people? Um, so I look right. I look forward to us uh, speaking at the Indiana Supreme Court in the uh, Marion County Court coming up this summer. Good stuff. Maybe they need you in the White House. Who knows? Uh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, Amy Woodall. Thank you so much. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor Podcast. And if you want to get in touch, then please email me at mkauke at sandler dot com. That's m c a u c h i at sandler s a n d l e r dot com or phone me on 07515-937-221 if you'd like to talk about problems in your business that you'd like to resolve. Amy, thank you. Thank you.